Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Conventional Soldier, a military podcast brought to you by two British Army veterans in association with ISAR.com. Welcome, everyone, and thanks for downloading another episode of our podcast. Our guest today is John Tullock, was suggested by the listener and former member of the HAC, Rich Anderson. John's military career began in 1965 when he was commissioned into the Royal New Zealand Artillery in, 19, in 1966. John developed his jungle warfare experience while serving in Vietnam with 161 Battery from July 1968 to July 1969 as a forward observation officer, nowadays referred to as a fire support team commander. John transferred to the British Army and the Royal Artillery in March 1973 and completed two tours in Northern Ireland, followed then by a two-year secondment to the Sultan of Oman's Artillery in 1978. In 1994, John began as a visiting advisor and instructor for the next 21 years on the British Army's Jungle Warfare Instructors course in Brunei. He also supported major jungle exercises in Belize for 10 years. Retiring from the Army in 2003, he became a MOD civil servant. John continued to instruct on the Jungle Warfare Instructors course until May 2015. John was honoured with an MBE in 2003 and the Royal Artillery Medal in 2011. An author of several, several articles about the Vietnam War in Borneo, he also gives talks on these subjects to military history groups and schools. Since retiring from the civil service in 2015, John began writing The Borneo Graveyard, 1941 to 1945 the product of 12 years of research. This is his first book and we will feature it on another podcast. John, it's great to have you on the pod. Can you start off by telling us what you made what made you join the army and why the gunners? My family is um, military, so it was there in the blood, to say the least. 
And I fo- we followed uh, my father, who's military ar- around the world, India, Pakistan, Malaya, Germany, UK. In Malaya, uh, during the end of the emergency, I went to school in Penang at Upland School. I was taught by one of my father's senior NCOs how to fire a Webley 38 pistol. I hated it because I thought it would break my wrist as an 11-year-old. A Sten Sterling submachine gun, which was great fun. And uh, the Jungle Carbine, which, of course, was a cut-down three oh three. That sort of set, set me on the, on the course. My family, they immigrated to New Zealand in, in 64. I was going to go to Mons, Officer Cadet School Mons, but I then um, joined them out in New Zealand. I went for the equivalent of RCB, called the ROSBY, Regular Officer Selection Board, and I uh, was chosen to go to Officer Cadet School Portsea in Australia. But I had to do a year in the ranks. And so I joined in January 65 as Private Tullock in the Royal New Zealand Infantry Regiment. Everything was designed for the infantry. Even if you were a gunner, it was very much infantry orientated. We had incredible instructors. And then I went to Portsea. Um, actually graduated top there. But by and by, I thought I would get commissioned into the infantry. But I wasn't. And I wanted the infantry. But they were um, commissioned into the Royal New Zealand Artillery. And so that is where it um, really all started in December 66. And when I transferred to the British Army in uh, March 73, I carried on with the Royal Artillery. What regiment was your father in, John? My father was, um, his Royal Signals. His father was a sapper. And then going further back, they were um, Indian Army. And interestingly enough, they they were in Afghanistan. <laughs> Something's uh, never changed. Yeah. Um, my father served out in India and Pakistan, or it was India then, pre-war, most of the time up in the northwest frontier. He was very proficient in at least three languages and got to know uh, that part of the world exceptionally well. And then after the war, he went back uh, to India. The partition occurred. And he was then posted to Pakistan. He was one of the major players in setting up uh, the Pakistani signal score. And so that, 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 that's sort of his, the history there. So before we go on to the main part of the podcast about John's experience in Vietnam, I just thought I'd give a basic outline of New Zealand's involvement in the Vietnam War, which was, like the American aspect, quite highly controversial, sparking off protests at home as well. This conflict was also the first in which New Zealand did not fight alongside the United Kingdom, instead following the loyalties of the Australia-New Zealand-America Pact, known as ANZUS. New Zealand decided to send troops in 1964 because of Cold War concerns and alliance considerations. It also upheld national interests of countering communism in Southeast Asia by the then Prime Minister, Keith Holyoke and he decided to keep the involvement in Vietnam at the minimum level deemed necessary to meet Allied expectations. And on the 27th of May 65, Holyoke announced the government's decision to send 161 Battery Royal New Zealand Artillery to South Vietnam in a combat role. It consisted of nine officers and 101 other ranks and four 105mm L5 pack howitzers, later increased to six, and in 1967 replaced with 105mm M2A2 howitzers. 
161 Battery was initially under command of the United States Army's 173rd Airborne Brigade for the first 12 months based at Bian Hoa near Saigon. And John, you'll probably pick me up with some of these pronunciations. Uh, upon the formation of the 1st Australian Task Force at Noidat in Phuc Toi province in June 66, the New Zealand government was given the choice of allowing the battery to remain at Bin Hoa with the 173rd Airborne under US command or integrate with the Australian forces. It was decided the battery would join 1ATF and serve with the Royal Australian Artillery Field Regiments. Forward observers for the battery would patrol with all the infantry companies of the Australian and New Zealand infantry while in operations, as they did with American infantry previously, and the battery was under command of the 173rd. And this was to call, as we know, direct artillery support when required. The gunners were noted for their key role insisting that a 6th Battalion Royal Australian Regiment during the Battle of Long Tan in which 18 Australians were killed, holding off a regimental-sized enemy force on the 18th of August 66. The battery also played important roles during the Tet Offensive and the Battle of Coral Balmoral in 1968. And the battery left Vietnam in May 71 after providing virtually continuous fire support, usually in support of Australian and New Zealand infantry units for six years, with over 750 men having served with the battery, with a loss of five casualties during the period of its deployment. So, John, bearing all that in mind, how well prepared were you for ops in Vietnam and what pre-deployment training did you carry out? Well, I think we were well well prepared. Prior to Vietnam, soldiers used to change hat badge and would become in, uh, become infantry, and then they'd come back to the guns. So there's this inherent infantry jungle uh, situation. Plus, we would, uh, every three months, on the fourth month, we would park up the guns and we would go into um, the bush and there we would uh, practice our, our jungle warfare skill, skills. And the skills there are absolutely um, necessary. Probably the most important of the lot was navigation. And there are a lot of places in New, New Zealand and the bush where navigation um, you can practice to absolute T. We were well prepared. And the other thing was we trickle-posted. A battery didn't arrive as 150 men. My, when I went there, I went with about 30 gunners, and you were there for your, for your 12 months. Our instructors and senior NCOs had all been to South Vietnam. Many of them had been to Borneo during the confrontation, and several had been the Malayan emergency. And in fact, um, our senior, our senior pronto had been to Korea and where he was um, a flaggy there. So we had this e- extraordinary expertise that, that was there. Uh, John, sorry, can I just jump in and ask you a quick question? I, I remember reading books about the American experience in Vietnam and they often said that they considered that trickle weakness, uh, that, that trickle posting a bit of a weakness. Did you ever feel that was the same in, in the New Zealand army? There were, there were two arguments on it. One that trickle posting you always had a level standard where people said it never reached a peak. Um, whereas if you arrived as a unit, you were all joined up, you arrived, you, you warmed up, and then you re- reached your peak. But the downside was, oh, I've got so many weeks to go, and everything started slow- slowing down dramatically. With us, um, the New Zealand Army was 5,500 strong. You know, it was, it was very small. We knew everyone. If one of the boys went down, we knew. We generally knew who the, that individual was, and it was mm-hmm. a very personal affair. And so the trickle posting for us, 
I think, um, played very strongly to our, to our hand. And the expertise, as opposed to arriving as a, as a raw, a raw FO and then having to, to work yourself up with an Australian company that may have already been in, in, um, in theatre for three or four months. You were on catch up. Whereas if you're triple posted, that didn't occur because you were learning from, from the FOs, the, the information and all the rest. Um, the Australians do the same, John? No. They post as units. Yeah. For instance, I as a forward observer towards the end of uh, three Australian rifles tour and then nine RAR appeared where I did most of my time um, as, as an FO. And with the regiments, the gunner regiments, they changed and suddenly you had from 12 regiment, you'd get 4th regiment uh, appearing. 161 was there as a, as, a, as a standard. The other thing, the officers, before we went, went out to Vietnam, we had to attend a four-month course, which was known as the, um, the Vietnam course. And that was everything. It it, uh, it broke you down. It was very intensive. You got to know, well, you knew everyone, and you got the tick in the box and you went. If you didn't get the tick in the box, you waited a year and you did the course again. So there was a great thing. I'm going to do it. And command post exercises, which were five days, all right, in Waiuru, but when you moved by helicopter, you had to scrub everything down. You then sat in a room and they played Chinook music to you for 40 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> and this was seriously balls-aching. And were the training areas you used, John, were they similar to Vietnam or not at all? Not at all. Um, no, I'd, I'll amend that. When we were doing the gunnery stuff, Waiuru, uh, it, it doesn't have bush. So we we were there pure, purely te- technical and uh, things of that nature. Um, whereas when we were doing the infantry, we were out in the bush. And if you went up into Coromandel uh, Peninsula there, it is actually very much like the backbone of Borneo. Sharp ridges, trees, bush. And a real test of your navigation and those basic skills that you were to utilise the Vietnam, I'd imagine. In, indeed, and one le- one learned um, very hard lessons there, like going round in a circle and suddenly being told by your seat, by your platoon sergeant, uh, yes, Mr. Farrakh, I think a compass would be useful next time. Lesson learned. No one hurt. <laughs> you picked up all, sor- all sorts of things. These guys, you know, the experience of these guys, it was there and it built on it. Did you have any? I mean, there must have been some Second World War veterans at that time, just at the end of their career, QMs, that type of thing, was there? Yes, we did. They were Solomon Islands um, in in the Pacific, and there's, as I'm not mentioned, um, one one individual was actually um, oh, what's the word, a ship watcher. Ah, yeah, yeah that was the um, yeah, of course, the SOE or Force One Three Six or something. Uh, the one three six was up in the um, Arak- Arakan uh, Burma way. Um, mm. the, this particular individual would um, sit there and watch the, the Japanese ships going past, and um, then reporting it on the radio. 
Yeah. Very, very, very brave, very brave people. But yeah, but mostly it was the um, the the Korean War guy, the Frozen Chosen, and then it was um, the Malayan Emergency. We we didn't have gunners there, per se, gun, but we had gunners who took part as infantry, as infantry officers. In fact, the when I was adjutant of 16 Field Regiment, the 2IC, he had, he had got a very good MC in, um, in Malaya during, mm. during the emergency as Royal New Zealand Infantry, though he was oh. actually gone. Looking at the training, um, the medical training and medical equipment wouldn't have been too different from World War II and Korea. So what training did you get in preparation for Vietnam? What sort of kit did you carry? What was the medivac, Kazivac sort of uh, protocol out there? Well, we were, we were taught the basics. Some of us actually carry, um, I forget. First field dressings. First, thank you, shell dressings, that sort of thing. The first field was invariably wrapped around the rifle. The medical pack was generally carried by either section. But the thing was, we had the dust off, the, um, uh, which was the Kazivac. Yeah. And that was that was incredible. Very, 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 very fast. Very, very quick. The system dropped everything um, to get these aircraft in, and those pilots were were very brave indeed. Whether it's um, Australian or or American, well, it's probably safe to say that that first line medical equipment probably didn't change until Afghanistan. I would probably say, yeah, because up until Afghanistan, it was still first field dressings and and that whatever the medic would carry. So even from Vietnam to Mid two thousands, John. There wasn't real advances, I would imagine. No, I don't think. Uh, I don't think so. I think uh, one of the in the company I, I was with with Nine RAR. I forget the name of the guy. He he was a medic, and he was he's actually a gr- really rather grotty man. And when he was back in base, which was very seldom. Invariably, it had two cans and had to be locked away because it goes to the head. But out in the field, he was outstanding, and um, we had our problems with uh, booby traps, as they were called, IEDs. And whenever a person went down, um, his the first IA, and he told everyone, "You flip him onto his stomach, and you're going to tell him he's going to produce a lot of kids in Australia once they know." They've lo- they've lo- they've lost the manhood. Uh, the lights go out, mm. and I, I I saw that occur unfortunately. But the dust off system was incredible. And when I say they were brave, there's one that um, American dust off came in, and I said basically bugger off. There's an awful lot going on. You can see green tracer, and this very lasonic American voice said, "You fight your war, we'll fight ours." And the guy was taken out in a jungle penetrator. Yeah. All the stuff flying around. It was really quite um, amazingly brave. Yeah. A good reassurance for the troops on the ground, though. Oh, yes. And America, I mean, the Vietnam War was the was instrumental with the use of helicopter and Kazivac. Although it had been used in other, other campaigns, never on the same level of intensity. That, that, 
Yeah, that, that is the word. Helicopters were used during the Korean War. Yeah. Um, and, of course, MASH is the um, pro. Yeah. That um, black comedy, I suppose, uh, that, that, that proves the point. Though during the Burma campaign, the Chindits, they didn't, they didn't have helicopters. But they had the equivalent of Osters or whatever it was. And it was actually um, Wingate, Lord Wingate, who was the, the starter of air, um, Aeromed in the jungle environment. And people, right. people don't give him that credit. Looking at personal weapons, John, what weapons were available and did you get a choice? Yeah, the the basic basic weapon was the SLR seven point six two, long, heavy, but it was a show showstopper. And there and there's the M sixteen, uh, the uh, Armalite. As an FO party, we we carried the Armalite, though um, halfway during my time, half my party said they they had no desire to carry the Armalite. They wanted the SLR. There was an incident, and I said, "Okay, draw lots. Whoever wants to um, carry the SLR, but you carry that. We're not carrying extra weight to take the weight off you, because there is a difference." The Battle of Long Tan, which um, changed many things, one of the things was infantry carried a hundred rounds, and it was proven a hundred rounds was not enough, and so it went to a hundred and forty. Carrying a hundred and forty rounds is, is weight. And with 7.62, actually, that, that becomes even a heavier weight with all, all the other clobber. We carried smoke generators, and we also carried claymores. And I think in the British Army, it's about two claymores a section or something of that nature. Um, just about every man had a claymore because they were heavily used in ambushing. And you often see pictures in Vietnam of the Australians and uh, New Zealanders. Some of them are carrying the Owen submachine gun. Did, was that not... An option for you, or did you not? I mean, nine mils, a very small caliber round. I'm not sure I'd want to be carrying one round. That was the, right at the very beginning. The urn was a well, I didn't like the weapon. It it, it was heavy, and that was um, was taken over, and the the arm light appeared, and the, the M16, and it was right only right at the very beginning that that that, that occurred. Oh, okay. Though we didn't carry it, the infantry they didn't have the the Jimpy, as we have it, they had the American M60, which was very uh, like the M16, was uh, pretty prone to, to stoppages. And its legs, right at the very top, were very brittle, and they could break quite easily. But that that gave the heavy weight, weight in um, machine gun fire. What sort of weights was, was you carrying during a patrol in the jungle? It would be about 70, 70 pounds. We tried to reduce as much as um, we tried to reduce as much as possible. And when we were in the um, in the trees, uh, as an example, I deplo- my party and I deployed on the twenty sixth of December, nineteen sixty eight, and we didn't get back to Nui Dad until the twenty third of April, nineteen sixty nine. So that was four months. Um, we had the American rations, the sea. Sea rations, which were pretty awful stuff, and not only that, there were tins. There's the ammunition we carried, the batteries, smoke generators, and that it all it all added up. The amount of food we generally carried 
um, five to eight days um, of rations. Water, we would carry four. Um, the bulk order was four cans or four canteens, black canteens of water. Some people had a bit more. I used to carry the the um, the bladder uh, full of full of water, um, and that was an emergency. And I was delighted whenever um, it got spiked by foliage. <laughs> Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. <laughs> it loses a lot. <laughs> that reduced my weight type of thing. I asked you for a couple of photographs and you kindly sent me a couple uh, so I could publicize the pod. And, and one of them is a picture of you wearing what you described as Buddy Holly safety glasses for eye protection. And, you know, interestingly, ballistic goggles did not become mandatory in the British Army until Afghanistan nearly four decades later. But I noticed in the photos you aren't wearing a helmet or body armour like most US units at the time. Was that standard practice in the New Zealand Army? And was wearing privately funded eye protection quite common? First, first of all, on body armour and, and steel helmets and that, no, we didn't, nor the, neither did the Australians. To to wear body armor in the in the, in the trees is, to my mind, is not an act of war, and we didn't believe it was either, because your the heat, the humidity is building up um, on the body. You've got you've got to breathe. The business about the helmet, all things speak against the helmet. First of all, the shape uh, of it stands out in the in the trees, and you can put as many branches and twigs sticking out of it. It still looks like a mobile uh, twig farm on top of a head. And there's the the other side of it. If you happen to be following, you can then follow people because they they should be snipping and putting twigs in their in their helmet. Another side of the helmet is um, is sound. In the jungle, one of the all your senses are screaming. And hearing is one of them. With a helmet, that destroys destroys that. And you've only just got to do that on your um, head to get the idea of how you get echo. You get a branch mm. driving, um, brushing against it. That destroys your 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 hearing. Um, we wore flat flop, floppy hats. 
So no, apart from on the fire bases, we had the the flak jackets, as, as they were called then, and they were by the gun, and that's where the helmets were as well. And no sooner did things happen, it was helmet on, flak jacket on. Apart from that, it was it was floppy hat, sleeves rolled down. The Americans, you'll always see them with sleeves up. Us, it was always down, etc. Now, I forget the other question you asked. It was what made you decide to invest in eye protection? Actually, my father and the optician in, in Fongaray, when he said, well, where are you going, told him. And he said, well, think about this. These glasses, they're not going to... They may they may protect your eyes. They were a heavy sort of pla- plastic thing. They were a safe safety type of glass. They were prescribed for my eyesight, which was then mm-hmm. was was pretty pretty atrocious. The downside was when you wore them, you looked like Mister Magoo. They're <laughs> <laughs> not not this smart sort of Rambo things that are that are around now. But I'm a great great fan of them. I got stuff thrown back into my face. When my hearing sort of came back two days later, well, there's a crack across the glass where some form of projectile had hit it, but it hadn't shattered. What it had, if that hadn't been there, I could have lost the eye. You can replace mm-hmm. many parts of the body, but you can't. You can't replace the eye. So, John, can you describe your role as a, as a forward observation officer on operations and how the guns and close air support were used in support of the? Uh, the infantry that you were on the ground with? Yeah, first of all, the um, the battery was in direct support, which was a brilliant thing, method, because we, the FOs, we were embedded with our company. And you got to know the company commander, it's 2IC, the CSM, very important, uh, the platoon commanders and the platoon sergeants. And with the platoon commanders, you knew who were good navigators and who were not. <laughs> and so when they called for fire, um, he'd said, oh, dear, we've got to watch this one carefully. And so there was that, that aspect of it, the dedication to it. We got to know. The company commander got to know you, the way of operating. And once they knew what we could give them, then it became a very close, close family. My role, adjusting and controlling for indirect fire, talking to the bird dog and bringing in CAS, close air support and the um, the gunships, which are today's attack helicopters, and indeed dust off, because it all became part and parcel of the thing. Most Mostly it was adjusting, at the end of the day, adjusting DF list. Here, the way I operated, and other FOs did as well, if you had three platoons out in ambush positions, the people may not like it, but the DF was, was actually their location. So it would be... Danger close straight away or straight onto their position. What all they had to do was to their contact, and this was all oral adjustment. Yeah. Direction, let's say 1600. I would get that. Target Romeo 1234. Direction 1600 at a thousand. I would plot that on my map. That is where that round is going to fall because the artillery rounds are accurate as a mortar runs. And so that is, uh, what's the word? It's a polar mission. Then right or left 400, plot on your map, the round comes down, and it, if I go right 400, that actually should be on a bearing of 2,000. And that confirms his location as well. Back, left 400, and then drop to, 
drop two to the 600, battery right, drop 100, drop 100 to 400. Do you want it any closer? Yes, and then 50 meter intervals. I've, I've, I've taught numerous, all the courses I taught in, out in Brunei on JWIC. We did this, we practiced it out, out in Belize. It is, it is actually fast. It confirms the location of the platoon commander. And I mentioned about navigation, one particular platoon commander, he called for fire. I went through the process and she, he came back. She's a beaut. Give it to me. And I thought, looked at my... That's good voice yeah, procedure. Absolutely. This is the thing. You get to know the guys. And I looked at my act and he was at right, drew a line. No round is to land any closer on that direction line. Add 100, battery right. And that's what we did. And he said, yes, that's absolutely brilliant. Give me more. So we fired. And the following day, he had actually a good ambush. Um, and he got something like 17 or 18 killed. But we went to his location. Where are you? And I said, here we go. It's going to be the sound of the kookaburra going off. And I turned around to the OC and said, no, he's here. I know exactly where he is. He's 800 metres out. And so off we went in that bearing. There he was, cursing and swearing, why why were we late? I took him to the side and gave him in whispers what I thought of him. The rounds had landed actually 100 metres in front of him. But, but that was one round, and that's why add, add a bit. Um, and that took him out, and he was highly excited that, that the battery landed where it was. So when patrols went out, John, did they always have dedicated fire support? We've got some civilian listeners and civilians that other people are not you know, familiar with uh, the Royal Artillery. But, you know, you don't always have dedicated fire support. Even if you have a FOO attached to your company, you might not be able to get a hold of some guns. And for the infantry, the only dedicated fire support they can rely on 100% of the time is their own mortars if they're in range. So when these patrols went out, did they always have dedicated fire support? That they could call on? In essence, yes, because you always operated under the umbrella of indirect fire. Now, I've, I've used American artillery and I've used um, Thai artillery because the battery was on the move. That was the only artillery within range, but you were always within that umbrella. The Battle of Long Tan proves the absolute um, imperative because the OC, when asked at the, at the end of it all, what was the one battlefield winning factor um, at the battle and he said one word and that was artillery and um, the FO whom I, I know personally um, he brought brought the battery down to 50 meters he had the other two Australian batteries and American 155 battery that's a big round that is but I fired an eight inch and when you're in the bunker system there she's a beaut because it gets down <laughs> gets down there. The, the mark missions, initially the platoon commanders were a bit wary of this and I said, look, you can locate yourself. All I want from you are the, are the bearing. Trying to teach them every time you hear guns fire, always take a bearing, whether it's from the the, uh, the fire base, this can all assist you in your, your navigation. Uh, the battery fired a lot of Pluto missions, H&Is, and sometimes up to 200 rounds a night, and these were on intel. Is that just protected fire on suspected resupply yeah. routes, that type so, of thing? Yeah, absolutely. Commander 2 Field Force Victor, we're a part of, he um, 
was a great believer in it. We thought it was to destroy our sleep, but actually <laughs> what it did do, the NVA or PAVM, um, the North Vietnamese and the Vietnamese, uh, Viet Cong, hated Pluto missions, HMI missions. It forced them when they were in their bunker camps, as opposed to sleeping above ground, they went underground. And that's where the mosquitoes were. And that's where malaria was. And so that was excellent. So it was a double-edged weapon. Mm. Um, and it, it, it did play on morale. I once fired a Lima-Lima mission, and that was around uh, Saigon, uh, to the north of Saigon. And if you can imagine a whole series of goose eggs, and this was Tet 69, not 68, 69, with, and each goose egg would be about 10 targets. And there are a whole lot, and they were done by name, Lima Lima. And what, what in mind, if you saw rockets or mortars firing out of that general area, you could call up Lima Lima 23, and every, every battery every mortar of um, 81 and above would engage three rounds on each of those 10 targets if they weren't engaged in any other mission. We were overlooking this area. The company commander and I was at night. We saw these rockets suddenly launch themselves, launch. We called a Lima Lima, and it was scary. Whole area, just a rock. And um, the following day, a platoon went out to check, and they came back and said it was just, just total destruction of the area. Coordinating close air support and gunships were, was the thing, and that that was something. And I, I always carried a fab long piece of paper, mathematical stuff squared off, and on there I could draw up and use that as a controlling feature. And if we were going forward in an attack in the base camp, then one could draw off where the infantry were from their from their locations, bring in the fire. Yes. Right, check firing um, at IP2, in they'd come, do their stuff, clear, cancel check firing. And so that became a very useful tool. Another thing was, it's certainly in the company I was, and it was the company commander's thing, and it was ex- excellent, is what we um, call the roadmap. And it was um, a large sheet, it's A5, um, A3, um, arithmetic mm-hmm. paper, gridline paper, and we'd have that in one in 25. And before any operation, you'd get paperwork, loads of it, of saying known bunker system, known this, known that, etc., etc. You put that on a one in 50 map, you just have a mass of red China graph splodge. Whereas here, we could write it on here, fill it out, and you could then start joining things together. That may be a track. And then when you insert it into the area, infantry platoons would go out, come back, and it was educating them. So if they said nothing to report and said, no, no, that's not good enough, did you come across a track? Yes. Was it one man? Was it three men? Well, it was a three-man track. What direction? What grid? The height of the trees. Because some of these trees could go up to 250 feet. You know, these, these are big. This is the jungle. Was it swamp? Um, and so you'd build up this roadmap. Thankfully, we didn't have Batco, but we had Griddle. And the, the company said, oh, well, that is Sydney Street. The, that track junction is Melbourne Junction. And this is Flinders Road. Contact 3VC running off up Sydney Street towards Melbourne Junction. I could look at that map, right? Fire mission battery, grid, 
takes them about 10 minutes to run that, have a stop, have a quiet giggle, and thank God we got out of that contact, and then wallop it comes down on top of them, you hope. And so you built built up this um, this map, and it was actually remarkably accurate. I get the impression of what you're describing there. This is probably like a large, but large bird's eye view range card in effect, or am I not doing it justice there? No, it, um, it is. Apart from it's a li- it's a living map of, of an area. Yeah. And here was the thing: um, track going over a stream through through a stream. Not sure of the position. Fire a mark mission. Got the grid of it, or a major track junction. And the business about if it was three men, three men abreast could walk. That's an MSR. Mm. And the North Vietnamese would move down these tracks at night with torches. If they thought they were in an area that no one was in, they would they would move, and they could move 20 kilometers at night mm-hmm. we don't <laughs> um and so the, consider that suicide wouldn't you yeah that, trying to move um so that that's that became a very these maps became a very important thing i had one and the company commander had one if i didn't attend the orders my ac and the mfc and here the mfc right at the very beginning I told the company commander, he's mine. And the, the MFC was delighted that he was actually, because he felt, because just, a lot of time these guys are ignored. And I said, if the MFC says that, we listen, you listen to it. And at, when we were adjusting DFs, I would get the MFC and said, there you are. You, you send fire orders, you, you adjust the guns. I'd hand, hand the same to, to my ACK and said, you adjust the mortars because it's slightly different language, but they get to hear the voice. And yes, we can, we can look after each other on, on this sort of thing. I think they call them FSTs now. But certainly when I transferred yeah. to the British Army, people looked at me sideways. Why do you talk to these people? And I said, because they're pretty important. Back back in our day, and a lot of time conventional firing in Germany, uh, you gave the MSC the uh, the quick smoke task. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because they had WP, and that was an easy task for the mortars to stick up. But yeah, I think it's a lot more coordinated now. George, so, oh, I, I, my next question really depends on the type of terrain you'd be working in, whether it's primary jungle, secondary jungle, or paddy fields. But how did you find ammunition natures and their effectiveness out in the, out in Vietnam? Our area, well, Phuktui uh, province um, was was paddy field. It had jungle, which was um, primary and secondary, and it had two um, large mountain complexes, the Nui Tai Vais and Long High Mountains. And on the western front, western side, yeah, we we had mangroves. First of all, the 105 round, which was the main was the main thing. Was a was a great little round, but people thought, well, we should be using this on delay to get down into through the trees. No, we use point detonating, and the reason being, it produced a fantastic cocktail. A rounds going off in the canopy, rounds going off halfway down, and rounds in the ground, and so you got the splinter from the shell, and then you got the splinters from the wood, and so you had this lethal cocktail. Other side of it is that it was um, clearing the canopy. And later on, that can actually be quite a saviour. From point of view, you get there, you can get a Kazovac helicopter, 
dropping down a jungle penetrator to take some, someone out. The 105 delay on bunkers just scratch. The bunkers there were made out of hardwood and the soil, it's an extraordinary, it's a, it's a clay. It's a solid, absolutely solid. And the, therefore, when they made their tunnels, it didn't sag. They, they didn't have support as you do in coal mines and things of that nature. You dug. It didn't matter whether it was during the wet, or during the dry. The only way to, um, if a round 105 hit it, had, had little effect apart from giving a guy a headache inside. But 155, if it hit it direct, then it would get in and destroy that bunker. An eight inch mm-hmm. didn't have to hit it. It could land near it and do the same and penetrate down to disrupt any tunnel system underneath. We had WP. Yeah, useful weapon. I know it's a smoke. 105 and WP. We didn't have um, canister smoke as, as we do here. We also had Splintex, or as the Americans called it, Beehive. And this was for the um, defense of the gun position. 6,000 little arrows, 3,000 in banks. And it had a range, I think, out to 3Ks, if I remember rightly. But it was absolutely lethal. And it would fire and out of the go. I forget what the left and right sort of angle from when it um, it then launched all these these things. Um but it was very, very effective. And each gun had like six a, of these. Like a huge claymore, in effect. Indeed. Indeed. Abs- ab- absolutely. And they were for the 105. But an interesting thing about Ryan's in the jungle, people say, oh, the jungle is just going to reduce the effectiveness. Um, after all, you've got these big trees and all the rest of it. Yes, in many ways, but there's another aspect of it. You've got the canopy, which keeps the sound down. And then you've got the trees, and trees are sound amplifiers. So the noise, it was interesting in Brunei, firing the mortars at 400 meters in the, in the jungle to see guys who had been to Afghanistan, who had been to Iraq, turtling, heads being pulled down. I said, guys, that's 400 meters away. And they'd look at you sideways because the noise is actually far greater than anything you'll hear in a village, a town, a built-up area because it is all all encompassed there. And another way of explaining it is um, in Borneo and Peninsula Malaya, the Iban, if we call, call them that, because there are many different tribes, they're able to talk to each other by a form of Morse code by hitting the buttress of a big tree. And they call them telegraph trees in Malay. And you hit mm. that and the noise just booms across the 105 rounds landing by that, it is booming. But the effect of indirect fire, um, and that this was something one had to put across, you can get tree blowdown, and that is very much the, the big fellows aren't going to fall down. It can shred an awful lot and then making an advance actually quite difficult. One An 8-inch can start having big effects. Um, and, of course, when you call in CAS, then you can have big, big trees lying down. And I've been, I've climbed 15 feet in the air up over these trees and down the other side, carrying on an advance. And this can actually disrupt, but this is one of the, the side effects that, that can occur. Advancing in such a thing, what we used to do, if it was two platoons up, then if I had the guns, I would have two guns firing sort of parallel on their attack bearing advance towards the sound of the guns. It's a marvellous thing to tell them in the orders group. 
So, sounds very 19th century. <laughs> sounds very First World War. You then just add, and if something bad occurs, battery right, down it comes, because you've all, your guns are already there and you can start, start doing it. So it, it, it helps. That's it for part one of this pod and part two will be out next week. Thanks for your continued support and suggestions and please keep them coming in and our email and social media links are at the bottom of the show notes. You can find us on all the usual suspects, including Instagram, Facebook, YouTube and Twitter. And if you've downloaded us from iTunes or Spotify and like the podcast, it'd be great if you could leave us a review. These are the two main platforms where the majority of our downloads come from. Finally, thanks also to Nick Beale for offering technical support for his company ISA. And we'll see you next time on The Unconventional Soldier. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.